We want to hear from you. Help us determine which books to read on the Sleepy Bookshelf by voting on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's always a pleasure to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Let's start by taking a big stretch. Focus on relaxing your muscles. Inhale and squeeze your shoulders up to your ears for a moment. Then drop them down fully on your exhale. Next, we'll focus on clearing your mind. Breathe in deeply and gather together all your worries or concerns. Now exhale and let them all go. Last time you were here, Jane hadn't yet spoken to any of the other girls at Lowood and ventured to talk to one during their outdoor time in the garden, reading a book on her own. The girl answered all of Jane's questions and explained that Lowood was a charity school whereby all the children were orphans of some kind or another. And while their families or friends contributed a small amount to their fees, the majority were paid by philanthropic families locally and in London. The same little girl, slightly older than Jane, was later seen standing on her own in the middle of the schoolroom as punishment from a teacher. The next day began as before, only this time Jane was expected to perform the tasks the same as the other girls, rather than simply spectating. She learned her new friend's name was Burns, and watched as she was again called out in her class by her teacher, Miss Scatcherd. This time she was hit on the back of her neck with a bundle of twigs. Later, when Jane had the opportunity, she spoke to Burns again, whose first name was Helen, and asked how she bore her punishment so calmly. Helen responded that she had no choice and that she deserved to be punished for being absent-minded and disorganized. We skipped forward then three months, Jane having explained how cold Lowood had been during the winter and how sickly some little girls were from lack of food and warmth. Tonight we pick our story up with Jane alluding to the visits of Mr. Brocklehurst. So just close your eyes 
and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 7 continued. I have not yet alluded to the visits of Mr. Brocklehurst, and indeed, that gentleman was away from home during the greater part of the first month after my arrival, perhaps prolonging his stay with his friend, the Archdeacon. His absence was a relief to me. I need not say that I have my own reasons for dreading his coming, but come, he did at last. One afternoon, I had then been three weeks at Lowood, as I was sitting with a slate in my hand, puzzling over a sum in long division, my eyes, raised in abstraction to the window, caught sight of a figure just passing. I recognized almost instinctively that gaunt outline, and when, two minutes after, all the school, teachers included, rose en masse, it was not necessary for me to look up in order to ascertain whose entrance they thus greeted. A long stride measured the schoolroom, and presently, beside Miss Temple, who herself had risen, stood the same black column which had frowned on me so ominously from the hearthrug of Gateshead. I now glanced sideways at this piece of architecture. Yes, I was right. It was Mr. Brocklehurst, buttoned up in a stirt out and looking longer, narrower, and more rigid than ever. I had my own reasons for being dismayed at this apparition. Too well I remembered the perfidious hints given by Mrs. Reed about my disposition and the promise pledged by Mr. Brocklehurst to apprise Miss Temple and the teachers of my vicious nature. All along I had been dreading the fulfillment of this promise. I had been looking out daily for the coming man whose information respecting my past life and conversation was to brand me as a bad child forever. Now there he was. He stood at Miss Temple's side. He was speaking low in her ear. I did not doubt he was making disclosures of my villainy, and I watched her eye with painful anxiety, expecting every moment to see its dark, orb turn on me a glance of repugnance and contempt. I listened too, and as I happened to be seated quite at the top of the room, 
I caught most of what he said. Its import relieved me from immediate apprehension. I suppose, Miss Temple, the thread I bought at Loughton will do, said Mr. Brocklehurst. It struck me that it would be just of the quality for the calico chemises, and I sorted the needles to match. You may tell Miss Smith that I forgot to make a memorandum of the darning needles, but she shall have some papers sent in next week, and she is not, on any account, to give out more than one at a time to each pupil. If they have more, they are apt to be careless and lose them, and I wish the woolen stockings were better looked to. When I was here last, I went to the kitchen garden and examined the clothes drying on the line. There was a quantity of black hose in a very bad state of repair. From the size of the holes in them, I was sure they had not been well mended from time to time. He paused. Your direction shall be attended to, sir, said Miss Temple. And ma'am, he continued, the laundress tells me some of the girls have two clean tuckers in the week. It is too much. The rules limit them to one. I think I can explain that circumstance, sir, said Miss Temple. Agnes and Catherine Johnston were invited to take tea with some friends at Loughton last Thursday and I gave them leave to put on clean tuckers for the occasion. Mr. Brocklehurst nodded. Well, for once it may pass, said he, but please not to let the circumstance occur too often. And there is another thing which surprised me. I find, in settling accounts with the housekeeper, that a lunch consisting of bread and cheese has twice been served out to the girls during the past fortnight. How is this? I looked over the regulations, and I find no such meal as lunch mentioned. Who introduced this innovation, and by what authority? I must be responsible for the circumstance, sir, replied Miss Temple. The breakfast was so ill-prepared that the pupils could not possibly eat it, and I dared not allow them to remain fasting till dinner time. Madam, allow me an instant, Mr. Brocklehurst returned. You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is to not accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, but to render them hardy, patient, self-denying. Should any little accidental disappointment of appetite occur, such as the spoiling of a meal, or the under, or the overdressing of a dish, the incident ought not to be neutralized by replacing with something more delicate the comfort lost. Thus, pampering the body 
and obviating the aim of this institution. It ought to be improved to the spiritual edification of the pupils by encouraging them to invince fortitude under the temporary privation. A brief address on those occasions would not be mistimed, wherein a judicious instructor would take the opportunity of referring to the sufferings of the primitive Christians, the torments of martyrs, to the exhortations of our blessed Lord himself, calling upon his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, to his warnings that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, to his divine consolations. If ye suffer hunger or thirst for my sake, happy are ye. O madam, when you put bread and cheese instead of burnt porridge into these children's mouths, you may indeed feed their vile bodies, but little think how you starve their immortal souls. Mr. Brocklehurst again paused, perhaps overcome by his feelings. Miss Temple had looked down when he first began to speak to her, but now she gazed straight before her, and her face, naturally pale as marble, appeared to be assuming also the coldness and fixity of that material especially her mouth, closed as if it would have required a sculptor's chisel to open it, and her brow settled gradually into petrified severity. Meantime, Mr. Brocklehurst, standing on the hearth with his hands behind his back, majestically surveyed the whole school. Suddenly, His eye gave a blink, as if it had met something that either dazzled or shocked its pupil. Turning, he said in more rapid accents than he had hitherto used, Miss Temple, what is that girl with curled hair? Red hair, ma'am, curled all over, and extending his cane, He pointed to the awful object, his hand shaking as he did so. It is Julia Seven, replied Miss Temple very quietly. Julia Seven, ma'am, and why has she or any other curled hair? Why, in defiance of every precept, and principle of this house, does she conform to the world so openly, here, in an evangelical, charitable establishment, as to wear her hair one mass of curls? Julia's hair curls naturally, returned Miss Temple, still more quietly. Naturally, yes, but we are not to conform to nature, said Mr. Brocklehurst, 
I wish these girls to be children of grace. And why that abundance? I have again and again intimated that I desire the hair to be arranged closely, modestly, plainly. Miss Temple, that girl's hair must be cut off entirely. I will send a barber tomorrow, and I see others who have far too much. That tall girl, tell her to turn round. Tell all the first form to rise up and direct their faces to the wall. Miss Temple passed her handkerchief over her lips, as if to smooth away the involuntary smile that curled them. She gave the order, however, and when the first class could take in what was required of them, they obeyed. Leaning a little back on my bench, I could see the looks and grimaces with which they commented on this manoeuvre. It was a pity Mr. Brocklehurst could not see them too. He would have perhaps felt that whatever he might do with the outside of the cup and platter, the inside was further beyond his interference than he imagined. He scrutinized the reverse of these living medals some five minutes, then pronounced sentence. These words fell like the knell of doom. All those top knots must be cut off. Miss Temple seemed to protest. Madam, he pursued, I have a master to serve whose kingdom is not of this world. My mission is to mortify in these girls the lusts of the flesh, to teach them to clothe themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair and costly apparel. And each of the young persons before us has a string of hair twisted in plaits which vanity itself might have woven. These, I repeat, must be cut off. Mr. Brocklehurst was here interrupted. Three other visitors, ladies, now entered the room. They ought to have come a little sooner to have heard his lecture on dress, for they were splendidly attired in velvet, silk, and furs. The two younger of the trio, fine girls of sixteen and seventeen, had grey beaver hats, then in fashion, shaded with ostrich plumes, and from under the brim of this graceful headdress fell a profusion of light tresses elaborately curled. The elder lady was enveloped in a costly velvet shawl trimmed with ermine, and she wore a false front of French curls. These ladies were deferentially received by Miss Temple as Mrs. and Miss Brocklehurst 
and conducted to seats of honor at the top of the room. It seems they had come in the carriage with their reverend relative and had been conducting a rummage scrutiny of the room upstairs while he transacted business with the housekeeper, questioned the laundress, and lectured the superintendent. They now proceeded to address diverse remarks and reproofs to Miss Smith, who was charged with the care of the linen and the inspection of the dormitories, but I had no time to listen to what they said. Other matters called off and enchanted my attention. Hitherto, while gathering up the discourse of Mr. Brocklehurst and Miss Temple, I had not, at the same time, neglected precautions to secure my personal safety, which I thought would be effected if only I could elude observation. To this end, I had sat well back on the form, and while seeming to be busy with my sum, had held my slate in such a manner as to conceal my face. I might have escaped notice had not my treacherous slate somehow happened to slip from my hand, and, falling with an obtrusive crash, directly drawn every eye upon me. I knew it was all over now, and as I stooped to pick up the two fragments of slate, I rallied my forces for the worst. It came. A careless girl, said Mr. Brocklehurst, and immediately after, It is the new pupil, I perceive. And before I could draw a breath, he continued, I must not forget. I have a word to say respecting her. Then he said aloud, and how loud it seemed to me, Let the child who broke her slate come forward. Of my own accord, I could not have stirred. I was paralyzed, but the two great girls who sat each side of me set me on my legs and pushed me towards the dread judge, and then Miss Temple gently assisted me to his feet, and I caught her whispered counsel. Don't be afraid, Jane. I saw it was an accident. You shall not be punished. The kind whisper went to my heart like a dagger. Another minute, and she will despise me for a hypocrite, thought I. And an impulse of fury against Reed, Brocklehurst and company bounded in my pulses at the conviction. I was no Helen Burns. Fetch that stool said Mr. Brocklehurst, pointing to a very high one from which a monitor had just risen. It was brought. Place the child upon it, he commanded, and I was placed there, by whom I don't know, 
I was in no condition to note particulars. I was only aware that they had hoisted me up to the height of Mr. Brocklehurst's nose, that he was within a yard of me, and that a spread of shot orange and purple silk pelisses and a cloud of silvery plumage extended and waved below me. Mr. Brocklehurst hemmed. Ladies, he said, turning to his family. Miss Temple, teachers and children, you all see this girl? Of course they did, for I felt their eyes directed like burning glasses against my scorched skin. You see, she is yet young. You observe, she possesses the ordinary form of childhood. God has graciously given her the shape that he has given to all of us. No single deformity points her out as a marked character. Who would think that the evil one had already found a servant and agent in her? Yet such, I grieve to say, is the case. A pause in which I began to steady the palsy of my nerves and to feel that the Rubicon was passed and that the trial, no longer to be shirked, must be firmly sustained. My dear children, pursued the black marble clergyman with pathos, this is a sad and melancholy occasion, for it becomes my duty to warn you that this girl, who might be one of God's own lambs, is a little castaway not a member of the true flock, but evidently an interloper and an alien. You must be on your guard against her. You must shun her example. If necessary, you must avoid her company, exclude her from your sports, and shut her out from your converse. Teachers, you must watch her. Keep your eyes on her movements. Weigh well her words. Scrutinize her actions. Punish her body to save her soul. If indeed such salvation be possible, for my tongue falters while I tell it, this girl, this child, worse than many a little heathen. This girl is a liar. Now came a pause of ten minutes, during which I, by this time in perfect possession of my wits, observed all the female Brocklehursts produce their pocket handkerchiefs and apply them to their optics while the elderly lady swayed herself to and fro, and the two younger ones whispered, How shocking! Mr. Brocklehurst resumed, This I learned from her benefactress, from the pious and charitable lady 
who adopted her in her orphan state, reared her as her own daughter, and whose kindness, whose generosity, the unhappy girl repaid by an ingratitude so bad, so dreadful, that at last her excellent patroness was obliged to separate her from her own young ones. Fearful, lest her vicious example should contaminate their purity, she has sent her here to be healed, and teachers, superintendent, I beg of you not to allow the waters of Bethesda to stagnate around her. With this sublime conclusion, Mr. Brocklehurst adjusted the top button of his surtout, muttered something to his family, who rose, bowed to Miss Temple, and then all the great people sailed in state from the room. Turning at the door, my judge said, Let her stand half an hour longer on that stool and let no one speak to her during the remainder of the day. There was I, then, mounted aloft. I, who had said I could not bear the shame of standing on my natural feet in the middle of the room, was now exposed to general view on a pedestal of infamy. What my sensations were, no language can describe, but just as they all rose, stifling my breath and constricting my throat, a girl came up and passed me. In passing, she lifted her eyes. What a strange light inspired them. What an extraordinary sensation that ray sent through me. How the new feeling bore me up. It was as if a martyr, a hero, had passed a victim and imparted strength in the transit. I mastered the rising hysteria, lifted up my head and took a firm stand on the stool. Helen Burns asked some slight question about her work of Miss Smith and was chided for the triviality of the inquiry, returned to her place and smiled at me as she again went by. What a smile. I remember it now, and I know that it was the effluence of fine intellect, of true courage. It lit up her marked lineaments, her thin face, her sunken grey eyes, like a reflection from the aspect of an angel. Yet at that moment, Helen Burns wore on her arm the untidy badge. Scarcely an hour ago, I had heard her condemned by Miss Scatcherd to a dinner of bread and water on the morrow because she had blotted an exercise in copying it out. Such is the imperfect nature of man. Such spots are there 
upon the disk of the clearest planet, and eyes like Miss Scatcherd's can only see those minute defects and are blind to the full brightness of the orb. Chapter 8 Ere the half hour ended, five o'clock struck, school was dismissed and all were gone into the refectory for tea. I now ventured to descend. It was deep dusk. I retired into a corner and sat on the floor. The spell by which I had been so far supported began to dissolve. Reaction took place, and soon, so overwhelming was the grief that seized me, I sank prostrate with my face to the ground. Now I wept. Helen Burns was not here. Nothing sustained me. Left to myself, I abandoned myself, and my tears watered the boards. I had meant to be so good and to do so much at Lowood, to make so many friends, to earn respect and win affection. Already I had made visible progress. That very morning, I had reached the head of my class. Miss Miller had praised me warmly. Miss Temple had smiled approbation. She had promised to teach me drawing and to let me learn French if I continued to make similar improvement two months longer. And then I was well received by my fellow pupils, treated as an equal by those of my own age. Now, here I lay again, crushed and trodden on. Could I ever rise more? Never, I thought, and ardently I wished to die. While sobbing out this wish in broken accents, someone approached. I started up, and Helen Burns was near me. The fading fires just showed her coming up the long, vacant room. She brought my coffee and bread. Come, eat something, she said. But I put both away from me, feeling as if a drop or a crumb would have choked me in my present condition. Helen regarded me, probably with surprise. I could not now abate my agitation, though I tried hard. I continued to weep aloud. She sat down on the ground near me, embraced her knees with her arms, and rested her head upon them. In that attitude she remained, silent. I was the first who spoke. Helen, why do you stay with a girl whom everybody believes to be a liar? Everybody, Jane. Why, there are only 80 people who have heard you called so. The world contains hundreds of millions. But what have I to do with millions? The 80 I know despise me, I replied 
chain. You were mistaken. Probably not one in this school either despises or dislikes you. Many, I am sure, pity you much. How can they pity me after what Mr. Brocklehurst said? Mr. Brocklehurst is not a god, said Helen. Nor is he even a great and admired man. He is little liked here. He never took steps to make himself liked. Had he treated you as an especial favourite, you would have found enemies, declared or covert, all around you. As it is, the greater number would offer you sympathy if they dared. Teachers and pupils may look coldly on you for a day or two, but friendly feelings are concealed in their hearts, and if you persevere in doing well, these feelings will ere long appear so much more evidently for their temporary suppression. Besides, Jane, she paused. Well, Helen, said I, putting my hand into hers. She chafed my fingers gently to warm them and went on. If all the world hated you and believed you wicked, while your own conscience approved you and absolved you from guilt, you would not be without friends. No, I know I should think well of myself, but that is not enough, said I. If others don't love me, I would rather die than live. I cannot bear to be solitary and hated, Helen. Look here, to gain some real affection from you or Miss Temple, or any other whom I truly love, I would willingly submit to have the bone of my arm broken, or to let a bull toss me, or to stand behind a kicking horse and let it dash its hoof at my chest. Hush, Jane, said she. You think too much of the love of human beings. You are too impulsive too vehement. The sovereign hand that created your frame and put life into it has provided you with other resources than your feeble self or than creatures feeble as you. Besides this earth and besides the race of men, there is an invisible world and a kingdom of spirits. That world is round us for it is everywhere, and those spirits watch us, for they are commissioned to guard us. And if we are dying in pain and shame, if scorn smote us on all sides and hatred crushed us, angels see our torches, recognize our innocence, if innocent we be. I know you are of this charge which Mr. Brocklehurst has weakly and pompously repeated at second hand from Mrs. Reed, for I read a sincere nature in your ardent eyes and on your clear front. And God waits 
only the separation of spirit from flesh to crown us with a full reward. Why then should we ever sink, overwhelmed with distress, when life is so soon over, and death is so certain an entrance to happiness, to glory? I was silent. Helen had calmed me. But in the tranquility she imparted, there was an alloy of inexpressible sadness. I felt the impression of woe as she spoke, but I could not tell whence it came. And when, having done speaking, she breathed a little fast and coughed a short cough, I momentarily forgot my own sorrows to yield to a vague concern for her. Resting my head on Helen's shoulder, I put my arms round her waist. She drew me to her, and we reposed in silence. We had not sat long thus when another person came in. Some heavy clouds swept from the sky by a rising wind had left the moon bare, and her light, streaming in through a window near, shone full both on us and on the approaching figure, which we at once recognized as Miss Temple. I came on purpose to find you, Jane Eyre, said she. I want you in my room, and as Helen Burns is with you, she may come too. We went, following the superintendent's guidance. We had to thread some intricate passages and mount a staircase before we reached her apartment. It contained a good fire and looked cheerful. Miss Temple told Helen Burns to be seated in a low armchair on one side of the hearth and herself taking another, she called me to her side. Is it all over? she asked, looking down at my face. Have you cried your grief away? I'm afraid I shall never do that, I answered. Why? she asked. Because I have been wrongly accused, and you, ma'am, and everybody else will now think me wicked. We shall think you what you prove yourself to be, my child. Continue to act as a good girl, and you will satisfy us. Shall I, Miss Temple? You will, said she, passing her arm round me. Now tell me who is this lady whom Brocklehurst called your benefactress? Mrs. Reed, my uncle's wife. My uncle is dead, and he left me to her care. Did she not, then, adopt you of her own accord? Asked Miss Temple. No, ma'am. She was sorry to have to do it. But my uncle, as I have often heard the servants say, got her to promise, before he died, that she would always keep me. Well now, Jane, you know, 
or at least I will tell you, that when a criminal is accused, he's always allowed to speak in his own defense. You have been charged with falsehood. Defend yourself to me as well you can. Say whatever your memory suggests is true, but add nothing and exaggerate nothing. I resolved in the depth of my heart that I would be most moderate, most correct, and having reflected a few minutes in order to arrange coherently what I had to say, I told her all the story of my sad childhood. Exhausted by emotion, my language was more subdued than it generally was when it developed that sad theme, and, mindful of Helen's warnings against indulgence of resentment, I infused into the narrative far less of gall and wormwood than ordinary. Thus restrained and simplified, it sounded more credible. I felt as I went on that Miss Temple truly believed me. In the course of the tale, I had mentioned Mr. Lloyd as having come to see me after the fit, for I never forgot the frightful episode of the Red Room, in detailing which my excitement was sure in some degree to break bounds, for nothing could soften in my recollection the spasm of agony which clutched my heart when Mrs. Reed spurned my wild supplication for pardon and locked me a second time in the dark and haunted chamber. I had finished. Miss Temple regarded me a few minutes in silence. She then said, I know something of Mr. Lloyd. I shall write to him. If his reply agrees with your statement, you shall be publicly cleared from every imputation. To me, Jane, you are clear now. She kissed me, and still keeping me at her side, where I was well content to stand, for I derived a child's pleasure from the contemplation of her face, her dress, her one or two ornaments, her white forehead, her clustered and shining curls and beaming dark eyes. She proceeded to address Helen Burns. How are you tonight, Helen? Have you coughed much today? Not quite so much, I think, Mom. Helen replied. And the pain in your chest? It is a little better. Miss Temple got up took her hand and examined her pulse. Then she returned to her own seat. As she resumed it, I heard her sigh low. She was pensive a few minutes. Then, rousing herself, she said cheerfully, But you two are my visitors tonight. I must treat you as such. She rang her bell. Barbara, she said to the servant who answered it. I have not yet had tea. 
bring the tray and place cups for these two young ladies. And a tray was soon brought. How pretty to my eyes did the china cups and bright teapot look, placed on the little round table near the fire. How fragrant was the steam of the beverage and the scent of the toast, of which, however, I, to my dismay, for I was beginning to be hungry, discerned only a very small portion. Miss Temple discerned it, too. Barbara, said she, can you not bring a little more bread and butter? There is not enough for three. Barbara went out. She returned soon. Madam, Mrs. Arden says she has sent up the usual quantity. Mrs. Harden, be it observed, was the housekeeper, a woman after Mr. Brocklehurst's own heart, made up of equal parts of whalebone and iron. Oh, very well, returned Miss Temple. You must make it do, Barbara, I suppose. And as the girl withdrew, she added, smiling, Fortunately, I have it in my power to supply deficiencies for this once. Having invited Helen and me to approach the table and placed before each of us a cup of tea with one delicious but thin morsel of toast, she got up, unlocked a drawer, and taking it from a parcel wrapped in paper, disclosed presently to our eyes a good-sized seed cake. I meant to give each of you some of this to take with you, said she, but as there is so little toast, you must have it now. And she proceeded to cut slices with a generous hand. We feasted that evening as on nectar and ambrosia, and not the least delight of the entertainment was the smile of gratification with which our hostess regarded us as we satisfied our famished appetites on the delicate fare she liberally supplied. Tea over and the tray removed, she again summoned us to the fire. We sat, one on each side of her, and now a conversation followed between her and Helen, which it was indeed a privilege to be admitted to hear. Miss Temple had always something of serenity in her air, of state in her mien, of refined propriety in her language, which precluded deviation into the ardent, the excited, the eager, something which chastened the pleasure of those who looked on her and listened to her by a controlling sense of awe. As such was my feeling now. But as to Helen Burns, I was struck with wonder. The refreshing meal, the brilliant fire, the presence 
and kindness of her beloved instructors, or perhaps more than all these, something in her own unique mind had roused her powers within her. They woke, they kindled. First, they glowed in the bright tint of her cheek, which till this hour I had never seen but pale and bloodless. Then they shone in the liquid luster of her eyes, which had suddenly acquired a beauty more singular than that of Miss Temple's, a beauty neither of fine colour, nor long eyelash, nor pencilled brow, but of meaning, of movement, of radiance. Then her soul sat on her lips, and language flowed, from what source I cannot tell. Has a girl of fourteen a heart large enough, vigorous enough, to hold the swelling spring of pure, full, fervid eloquence? Such was the characteristic of Helen's discourse on that memorable evening. Her spirit seemed hastening to live within a very brief span as much as many live during a protracted existence. They conversed of things I had never heard of, of nations and times past, of countries far away, of secrets of nature discovered or guessed at. They spoke of books, how many they had read, what stores of knowledge they possessed, Then they seemed so familiar with French names and French authors that my amazement reached its climax when Miss Temple asked Helen if she sometimes snatched a moment to recall the Latin her father had taught her, and taking a book from a shelf, bade her read and construe a page of Virgil and Helen obeyed, my organ of veneration expanding at every sounding line. She had scarcely finished ere the bell announced bedtime. No delay could be admitted. Miss Temple embraced us both, saying as she drew us to her heart, God bless you, my children. Helen, she held a little longer than me. She let her go more reluctantly. It was Helen her eye followed to the door. It was for her she a second time breathed a sad sigh. For her she wiped a tear from her cheek. On reaching the bedroom, we heard the voice of Miss Scatcherd. She was examining drawers. She had just pulled out Helen Burns's, and when we entered, Helen was greeted with a sharp reprimand and told her that tomorrow she should have half a dozen of untidily folded articles pinned to her shoulder. My things were indeed in shameful disorder. 
murmured Helen to me in a low voice. I intended to have arranged them, but I forgot. Next morning, Miss Scatcherd wrote in conspicuous characters on a piece of pasteboard the word slatten and bound it round Helen's large, mild, intelligent, and benign-looking forehead. She wore it till evening, patient, unresentful, regarding it as a deserved punishment. The moment Miss Scatcherd withdrew after afternoon school, I ran to Helen, tore it off, and thrust it into the fire, the fury of which she was incapable had been burning in my soul all day, and tears, hot and large, had continually been scalding my cheek, for the spectacle of her sad resignation gave me an intolerable pain at the heart. About a week subsequently to the incidents above narrated, Miss Temple, who had written to Mr. Lloyd, received his answer. It appeared what he said went to corroborate my account. Miss Temple, having assembled the whole school, announced that inquiry had been made into the charges alleged against Jane Eyre, and that she was most happy to be able to pronounce her completely cleared from every imputation. The teachers then shook hands with me and kissed me, and a murmur of pleasure ran through the ranks of my companions. Thus relieved of a grievous load, I, from that hour, set to work afresh, resolved to pioneer my way through every difficulty. I toiled hard, and my success was proportionate to my efforts. My memory, not naturally tenacious, improved with practice. Exercise sharpened my wits. In a few weeks, I was promoted to a higher class. In less than two months, I was allowed to commence French and drawing. I learned the first two sentences of the verb être and sketched my first cottage, whose walls, by the by, outrivaled in slope those of the leaning tower of Pisa on the same day. That night, on going to bed, I forgot to prepare in imagination the barmecide supper of hot roast potatoes or white bread and new milk with which I was wont to amuse my inward cravings. I feasted instead on the spectacle of ideal drawings which I saw in the dark, all the work of my own hands, freely penciled houses and trees, picturesque rocks and ruins, groups of cattle, sweet paintings of butterflies hovering over unblown roses, of birds picking at ripe 
cherries, of wren's nests enclosing pearl-like eggs wreathed about with young ivy sprays. I examined too in thought the possibility of my ever being able to translate currently a certain little French story which Madame Pierrot had that day shown me, nor was that problem solved to my satisfaction ere I fell sweetly asleep. Well, as Solomon said, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. I would not now have exchanged Lowood with all its privations for Gateshead and its daily luxuries.